there was a sign that was tacked on a tree near a convent. And it was a sort of an odd sign because it read, No Trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Signed, the Sisters of Mercy. (laughs) Mercy doesn't come naturally to human beings. In fact, the world in which we live could be characterized as a very unmerciful place. Think politics for just a moment. We're getting into the season where you're going to see the spin doctors come up with the slurs, the dirt on the opposing candidate. What's wrong with that candidate? Why we shouldn't vote for him? Negative campaigning. And then finding faults and publishing them in tabloid magazines. Well, that's, that's one of America's favorite pastimes, isn't it? The Beatitudes that we have read up to this point, and today we're going to look at verse 7, are so beautiful in what they cover And so, as we've already discovered, opposite to what the world believes in. And to show you that stark contrast, allow me to read a little section out of what is called the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. Hate your enemies with a whole heart. And if a man smite you on one cheek, smash him on the other. Smite him hip and thigh, for self-preservation is the highest law. Stop the way of them that would persecute you. Let them be as chaff before the cyclone, and after they have fallen, rejoice in thine own salvation. Cursed are the weak, for they shall inherit the yoke. Cursed are the righteously humble, for they shall be trodden under cloven hoofs. Cursed are the God-adorers, for they shall be shorn sheep." Cursed are the lambs of God, for they shall be bled whiter than snow. Now let's go back 2,000 years. And let's think about the culture in which Jesus and later on Paul lived in. Again, it was an unmerciful culture. Characterized not by mercy, but by the iron fist of Roman justice. In fact, one Roman philosopher said, Mercy is the disease of the soul. Why? Because the Romans exalted courage, justice. Mercy was considered weakness. Even the famous Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace, was an enforced peace. It was kept by the armies of Roman legions around the world. In fact, Roman fathers had granted to them what was called the right of patria potestas, which was the ultimate right of life and death as a father over his family. It worked this way. When a newborn came into the family, it was lifted up for the father to see, and if the father desired that child to live, he would put a thumb up. If he put a thumb down, the child was immediately taken out and drowned. The patria potestas gave him the right of execution. Even a husband could do that with his wife at at any kind of a whimsical reason. If he didn't want her to live, he could have her executed. If a citizen wanted a slave to die and could produce the evidence, that slave would be killed just at the whim of a citizen. Paul characterized his world this way in Romans chapter 1. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Paul's world 2,000 years ago. Now look with me at chapter 5, and we'll once again go back to verse 2 and read the context. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This morning, I want you to look at just a couple of things. We're going to approach it from two different angles, generally and then specifically. It is a general statement. So we want to look at the meaning of mercy generally. But then we want to look at the manifestation of mercy specifically. What would it mean to us if we were to be merciful people? First of all, generally, the meaning. The term mercy is the word elias, which is a judicial term that basically means not getting what you deserve. That is, withholding some consequence or punishment. You deserve it, but you're not going to have to have it. It's related to a couple of other terms. Justice, which is getting what you deserve. And grace, which means being gifted something more than you could ever deserve. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're driving down the street. You're breaking the law. You get pulled over by a police officer. Now, I'm speaking from personal experience here when I give this example. In fact, as I pulled into town the second day I arrived back in Southern California, I was pulled over by a police officer. And I won't tell you exactly what I did, but it wasn't all that bad, but he thought it was bad. And that's what counts, right? Let's say you're breaking the law. Police pulls you over. Can I see your driver's license, registration, buddy? Sure, officer, you hand it to him. You're breaking the law. You did this, this, and the other thing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to write you a ticket. That's justice. I deserve the ticket. But let's say he says, you know what? I feel sorry for you. You're new in town, aren't you? (laughs) Tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a, a warning, just a written warning, but I'm going to let you off the hook this time. That would be mercy. I'm not getting what I deserve, i.e., the ticket. You say, okay, I I get that part, mercy and justice. What would grace look like? Grace would look like the officer giving me the ticket and then taking it back and paying for it himself. (laughs) That will never happen, ever. (laughs) But that would be grace. Grace, mercy, and justice. Part of God's very nature is that he is a God of mercy. Listen to a a depiction of God in the Old Testament. This is Exodus 34. You know the incident. It was right after the children of Israel sinned with the golden calf. And God says about himself, The Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, 
and sin. Here's another familiar passage, Psalm 103. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And then Paul, speaking of our condition before God, alienated from Christ, without hope in the world, he says in Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy. Isn't that good to know that your God is rich in mercy? God's mercies are new every morning. I need them every morning. I use them up. And they're fresh and new every morning. Now, if you have a legal background, you might ask, okay, help me to understand this. How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? I mean, if he's just, then he must punish sin. That's justice. So if God's merciful, wouldn't mercy negate God's justice? And that's good thinking. Because actually, the truth is, God doesn't show mercy without punishing sin. God will extend mercy, but he won't do it arbitrarily. He wants to say, oh, well, you're a nice guy. You look really good today. Uh, I'll do this for you. There is always a price to be paid. And here's how it works. The best example is the cross. If you look at the cross, you see all three of those lining up. At the cross, justice was served because the punishment for my sin and your sin was put upon the blameless one, Jesus Christ. Justice was served. Punishment for sin was exacted. But mercy was also given because I don't get now what I deserve because of that sacrifice by my Savior, I don't have to go to hell. I don't get what my sin deserves, punishment. But then grace was also given at the cross because beyond not just going to hell, beyond the justice of sin being punished, I get a ticket to heaven, free. That's the gospel. So God comes down and He pays for the ticket Himself And I, the one who got the ticket. So justice and mercy and grace. In every act of mercy, in every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. And in this case, it was our Savior. Charles Wesley wrote in one of his hymns, The depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners, spare? Okay, so that's mercy on a judicial level, on a theological level. What about mercy on a personal level? Because after all, Jesus is speaking the beatitude to us, to his followers. Yes, mercy is part of God's nature, but the beatitude is directed toward us. So what would mercy look like on an individual? Well, basically, mercy means to give help to the afflicted or to rescue the helpless. And whenever a true act of mercy is seen, it is such a contrast to what the world portrays. A few years ago, the newspaper ran an article about Kitty Genovese. She was walking home from her place of work back to her apartment in New York City. And on the way, she was assaulted. She was raped. And she was murdered. It was an episode that lasted 30 minutes. It was done in public. And 38 of her neighbors were watching through their windows. 
Not one of them lifted a phone to call for help. Not one of them intervened by stepping in and helping Kitty Genovese. She died brutally. No mercy was shown. See, mercy isn't just, I feel so bad for, I feel so sorry about. That's sappy sentimentalism. True mercy is I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to help or rescue the helpless. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, blessed are the merciful. In other words, those in my kingdom are givers, not takers. Those in my kingdom are rescuers, not bystanders. So that's the meaning of mercy generally. The second thing I want to look at is this. The manifestation of mercy specifically. If that's the case, what would mercy look on us, look like on believers? I'm going to give you four things. Mercy is shown or demonstrated by caring for the needy. Mercy is shown by overcoming prejudice, number two. Mercy is shown by forgiving people. And mercy is shown by preaching the gospel. First of all, mercy is shown by caring for the needs of people. Now, Jesus did this all the time. He was so merciful to the needs of people. He healed the sick. He opened blind eyes. He, he unstopped deaf ears. He caused to walk those who were crippled. He rose from the dead those who had died. These are acts of mercy. In fact, to this day, we call certain things like this mercy ministries. Oh, he's involved in a mercy ministry. He's helping the sick. There was a blind guy in Jericho who saw Jesus and knew this about his character. And do you remember what he cried out? Son of David, have mercy on me knowing that if you would touch my blindness, that would be a merciful deed. But then Jesus turned it around on us, his followers. Blessed are you who are merciful. You will obtain mercy. A lawyer came to Jesus, and they were discussing the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, what does the law read? The lawyer said, well, we've got to do this, do that, and do the other thing, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, right on. Now I'm paraphrasing just a bit. I don't think he really said right on. And the man said, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus told him a story. A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves. He was beaten up, left dead by the side of the road. Religious people came by. They didn't lift a finger to help him. But a Samaritan came by, saw his plight, applied oil to his wounds, and healed him. Then Jesus said, of those three, which do you suppose was the neighbor to the man who was beaten up? And the lawyer was right. He said, I suppose the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, then go and do likewise. So to help people in need who are oppressed and needy is an act of mercy. The early church did this all the time. They sold their homes, their property. They divvied up the goods to those who were in need. There was even a notable lady among the early church in the book of Acts named Dorcas. 
I don't know about her name, but her reputation was wonderful. Uh, Dorcas took, she was a, a master at needlework, and she sewed cloaks, coats, clothes for the poor, and distributed them. And then we remember the words of Jesus who said, I was hungry and you fed me, naked and you clothed me, thirsty and you gave me water. And you're going to say, when did we ever see you naked or hungry or thirsty? And Jesus will say, in as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. A lady in England needed some help. The church had all sorts of committees but never really lifted a finger to help her. And she did a takeoff on that little story of Jesus and wrote them a letter. The vicar received it and it read, I was hungry and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I am still very hungry and lonely and cold. What would mercy mean? Mercy would mean caring for the needs of others. Second, mercy is shown by overcoming prejudice. Now go back with me in your mind to 2,000 years ago at the time of Jesus in Jerusalem surrounded by all sorts of religious people like scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious elite. Though they were the religious elite, long-standing members of their community, they were filled with prejudice. Let's see. They were prejudiced against women. Uh, Let's see, they were prejudiced against Gentiles, not even wanting to walk on a road where another Gentile had been, holding their robes close to their bodies. They were prejudiced against the Roman government. They hated the Roman officials. Now think of Jesus. He goes to Samaria, to a well, and meets with a woman. He is fighting two different prejudices. One, she's a woman. Two, she's a Samaritan woman. But Jesus extended mercy to her. Another woman caught in adultery. You know the story. Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. The law demands she be stoned. And that story has always interested me. Isn't it odd that they only brought the woman to be stoned? It's adultery, right? Didn't it take two? Last time I checked. Where's the dude? How about that guy to get stoned? Oh, but they, they brought the woman to be stoned. And so Jesus said, hey, you're without sin. You pick up the first rock. And they all walked away. Jesus showed mercy to her. Matthew, a tax collector, an IRS guy. If the, if the Jewish religious elite hated anybody, it was them. Because guys like that were traitors. But Jesus said, Matthew, follow me. Be on my team. Join my staff, man. A merciful, merciful gesture. And then later, Jesus even railed on the Pharisees, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin 
and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It's interesting that the one characteristic that bothered Jonah about God was God's mercy. God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and give him a message. And you know, he went the opposite direction. God said, go 500 miles that direction. He went 2,000 miles. He tried to the other direction. A disobedient prophet, a prodigal prophet. Finally, God got his attention. You know, it's a fishy story. You, you know how it goes. When he goes over to Nineveh and he finally gives this message, begrudgingly even, a revival breaks out. Now, come on. If God sent you to a place like that to say words that he put in your mouth and a revival broke out, would you be excited? Some of you would. Look at all the people coming to God in this city, this pagan city. How exciting. Not Jonah. He got angry at God. He was mad that God would dare forgive people like the Assyrians, those creeps. Listen to it. In Jonah chapter 4, this made Jonah very unhappy. He became angry and he prayed to the Lord, This is what I said would happen. And that is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you're a God who's kind <laughs> and shows mercy. Bah humbug, God. How dare you bless other people besides us Jews in Jerusalem? Bitter and angry over God's kind, merciful spirit. Now let's take a test. Draw up a self-imposed report card in your mind right now. Who are you prejudiced against? What group of people, what person, what persons would you not want moving in next door to you? Just think about that. People can become prejudiced. Christians can become prejudiced. Churches can become prejudiced. You, you could take every, any given town and see the demographic of churches just reflect a certain segment instead of the whole in a community. They can become social clubs. I heard about a gal, a poor woman, she tried to join a very fashionable upscale downtown church. They didn't want her. The ushers met her at the door and said basically, well, I don't think this is the right place for you to worship. There are other places that would suit you much better than this place. But she insisted she wanted to join. The leaders wouldn't let her join. The elders were mean to her. The deacons wouldn't let her join. Finally, she went to one of the pastors and said, I want to join your church. And this elder said, well, pray about it. That's a fun little Christian slogan. Pray about it. You pray about it and I'll pray about it. And let's just wait a few months and see what God says. They, they never saw her again. One day, this elder is walking downtown into an office building where this woman was the scrubbing lady, the caretaker. She was on her knees and she was cleaning. And he recognized her and said, Aren't you that gal that tried to join our church several months ago? Yes, sir, I am. And I told you to go pray about it. 
Yes, sir, you did. Well, did you? I sure did. Well, did God tell you anything? Oh, yes. God told me that I shouldn't worry about it because He's been trying to get into your church for years with no more luck than I've had. The whole group had become a prejudiced group, not opening their doors to any el- anyone else. Third, mercy is shown by forgiveness. Mercy is shown by caring for people's needs. Mercy is shown by overcoming prejudice. Mercy is shown by the willingness of our hearts to forgive people. Again, think of Jesus. His embrace, it was so wide as to include so many kinds of people, and he would forgive them. You could be a prostitute and be forgiven by Jesus. You could be a a criminal and be forgiven by Jesus. You could be Matthew the tax collector and be forgiven by Jesus. But remember, not everybody liked Jesus' embrace and willingness to forgive and bring in anyone. They didn't like it. Again, the Pharisees didn't like it. They brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Said, the law demands she be stoned. Jesus said, if you're without sin, cast the first rock. They all went away. But by the end of the chapter, they are picking up stones to throw at Jesus. They did not embrace his forgiveness of others. Now perhaps, and I want you to look at the verse again because there's the second half we have to consider Perhaps the best way to understand the rest of this verse is by thinking of it in terms of forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Question, from whom will they obtain mercy? What is the verse speaking about? Does it mean that if you're a merciful person, others will see it and say, well, gee whiz, I'm going to be a merciful person as well. No, if you're thinking that, you'll be sadly mistaken. It doesn't mean that at all. Again, Jesus was a merciful person, and his mercy was not received by other people. A woman caught in adultery, yet they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, and yet many were sad to see him go. So when it says, they shall obtain mercy, it doesn't mean they're going to obtain it from other people. No, the subject of that second clause is God. Is God. They shall obtain mercy from God is the, is the idea. You say, well, Skip, how do you know that? I know that by the first rule in hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. It's called context. You always interpret a text by its context. And if you look at all the Beatitudes, you find this to be the case. Look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who gives them the kingdom of heaven? God does. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. God gives them comfort. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. God is the giver of that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. God will fill them for their hunger for righteousness. And as it was in all of those beatitudes, so in this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. God is the subject of that clause. Well, what does it mean now? Does it mean that if I fill my life with all sorts of merciful deeds, that God will see my deeds and I'll earn heaven? Not at all. 
It is not speaking of earning salvation or working our way to heaven. It is simply speaking, I believe, of the cycle of God's mercy. This is how it works. God starts it. He's merciful to me. He saves me. He graciously allows me to enter heaven by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Mercy, grace, justice. That mercy is received by me. I, in turn, because of what He's done for me, become a merciful person to others. Then I receive more mercy from Him throughout my life. His mercies are new every morning. And the cycle continues. As I am merciful, God shows more mercy to me. In terms of forgiveness especially, Jesus said when He taught us to pray, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus said, if you do not forgive those who are your debtors, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. This then is the cycle of God's mercy. The best illustration I can think of is Matthew 18. You can write that down or look it up or you don't have to turn to it now, but keep it in mind at least. Matthew 18 is the parable Jesus gives of the forgiven servant. Here's a guy who owed a debt of millions of dollars to a king, couldn't pay it back, begged for mercy, and even said, I'll pay you back, I promise. Couldn't do it. The king forgave him all of his debt. Then he went out and found somebody who owed him, I don't know, 100 bucks, 25 bucks, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, pay everything you owe me, and threw him in prison. When the king heard about it, he found that servant and he said, I forgave you. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? That makes sense, doesn't it? God would say, wait a minute. If I can send my son to bleed on a cross and by doing that forgive you of everything you've ever done wrong and get you to heaven, can't you forgive the guy who cut out in front of you on the freeway? No, I can't. He'll pay. You better go back to Mercy 101. Amy Carmichael put it this way. If I say, yes, I forgive, but I could never forget, as though the God who twice a day washes all of the sands on all of the shores of all of the world could not wash such memories from my mind, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Fourth and finally, mercy is shown by preaching the gospel. Now listen carefully. How merciful are we if we are really not concerned about people who are dying and going to hell? How could we ever be said to be merciful people if the most incredibly worst thing, eternal separation from God, doesn't move us when we're around unbelievers? You know... How merciful are we if we fix their bodies, build them homes, decry prejudice against them, but do nothing to make sure that they're on their way to heaven? One of the most merciful things you could ever do is preach the gospel to people. And yes, you have to use words. I know there's a saying going around that says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I hate that. You have to use words. Paul writes in Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? You need to proclaim truth to them and live out that truth. That's one of the most merciful things you can do. 
After a funeral, St. Augustine said, If I weep for the body from which the soul is departed, should I not weep for the soul from which God is departed? So God wants his church, wants us, you, me, to be merciful. To look at people through the eyes of Christ and say, there's a lost individual who needs to experience God's mercy and grace and love. I'm going to say something to them. They're not going to like what I'm going to say. They may reject me and mock me and scorn me. I'm going to take that risk because in mercy, God would have me to do that. That's what the church needs to be about. It's the only outfit that exists for the benefit of others. We're here to do that. A church that does not evangelize will eventually fossilize. Guaranteed. A church that doesn't evangelize will fossilize. Do you want to be a fossil? I don't. So let's be merciful and preach the gospel. Some of you need to experience God's mercy this morning. Frankly, you're here and uh, you feel pretty beat up by the world. You've been to work. You've been on the freeway because you don't have a toll road thing. And people give you those looks when they go by at five miles an hour. It's a stressful week you've had. And you think, man, it's hard just to live. You need God's mercy. The world has beaten you up. Maybe even some Christians have beaten you up. Have not been merciful to you. Some of you are here, and perhaps you're here, but, you know, you were drug here. You don't like churches. You never have liked churches. You say, I'm turned off by churches. I understand. I don't blame you. I've seen some of God's people. But let me just tell you this. Jesus Christ is different than a lot of Christians are. Don't judge Jesus by all of his kids. Some of his kids are wonderful, and they will treat you like he would treat you. And know that there are some who would receive you with great mercy and care. And come to him if you haven't come to him. A family was on vacation back in Florida. They went to Disney World, and it's interesting. It was a crowded day. They were in Cinderella's castle, kids mulling around. One decisive moment stopped the mulling and started the coagulation of people. It was the entrance of Cinderella. She walked through the door, and all the kids oohed and awed, and they, they mauled her, basically. They, they came around her, pressed against her, except for one, one little deformed child who was left out of the crowd and couldn't make it fast enough over to Cinderella. He was left all alone and had that look on his face of rejection that he had seen so many times. Cinderella, or the gal who played Cinderella, spotted the child and parted the crowd and made her way over to that one deformed child and bent down and kissed him on the forehead. It was a gesture beyond words. Everybody could see what was going on. This great princess has humbled herself for this deformed child. Think of God who infinitely did more in condescending to come out of heaven and not just kiss foreheads, but to take our ugliness 
and in exchange give us His beauty. Mercy. God is merciful to us. May we, in His name, for His sake, extend mercy to others. His kids? Those not His kids yet. Heavenly Father, we know that it is your desire that your children emulate you, like the old saying goes, like father, like son. And we pray that we, your sons and daughters, those who claim to know you, would be like you in our attitude toward people, caring for needs, not just a sentimental feeling, but caring for needs. Overcoming prejudice as we see people through the eyes of Jesus, disenfranchised by groups of society, loved by you. Amen. Amen. Amen.